HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and we have a great show for you today. Um, I'm here in the studio with chef and owner of uh, two great restaurants here in New York, Jimmy Bradley. Uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy has the Red Cat and the Harrison. Um, Red Cat opened up in 1999 and the Harrison in 2001, um, extremely impressive longevity for restaurants here in New York, and uh, certainly due to the the, the quality and uh, talent of uh, Jimmy and his his team's uh, work. So, Jimmy, thank you so much for for being in the studio with us today. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Um, I you know it was really uh, surprising to me to find out. So we're here on in the drink, and um, you have. Quite, uh, quite a family lineage uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to wine, which was uh, a surprise for me to find out, um, and it's why we have you here on the show today. Can you tell us a little bit about your 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 background with wine? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess we'll start with a, a, a last name like Bradley might not uh, lead you down the road to believe that you know I could be in the wine business or even perhaps half Italian, but. Um, my family, in, in two different aspects of it, has been in the wine business since uh, 1886 in Alba, Italy, and then um, also as well in uh, Cucamonga, California, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the uh, 50s through the 80s. Okay, so in 1886, they were up in Piedmont, um, and you're part of the Pio Cesare family. Yes, that's okay. correct. It's uh, The winery is named Pio Cesare. Um, the man who runs it now, his name is Pio Balfa, and he is my cousin, and he's a fourth-generation proprietor. So prior to him, his father, prior to that, his grandfather, and Pio Cesare is his great-grandfather. 
So did you always grow up knowing about the side of the family in Italy and the, the family's wine business? Was this something that was constantly in your head or drilled down as a kid? You got to join the family's wine business? Yeah, somewhat. I, I grew up in, in Philadelphia and uh, also in Rhode Island. And so when I was in Philadelphia, the family's name is uh, Pio. The last name is Pio. My great-grandfather's name is Bartolomeo Pio. So he moved to America and he started a wine business in Pennsylvania, but he, he, he dabbled. He had lots of other things, hardware store, Christmas trees, you, you name it. He sounds so, like a resourceful guy. Well, I, yeah, I guess it's the immigrant mentality and uh, five kids in a new country. So, yeah, very resourceful. Um, so we would see things, you know, my grandmother and her brothers and sisters, everybody lived near each other, and they they – they were old world, so sausage makers and cheese makers and always messing around with food and food in the house and then drinking wine with the meals, whether it was lunch or dinner, daytime or nighttime. And I hadn't seen that in the, in the Bradley side of the family. And <clears throat> so I guess... So they were the fun side of the family. <laughs> well, uh, the, <laughs> they, you know, the Irish and the Italians have some things in common, and uh, it, it was – I got a lot of good stories. So we'll see how many we can share with you today. But um, I guess the long and the short is is I, I had opportunities to, to see about wine and food young at a young age in, in Pennsylvania, and then – Later on, opportunities to travel to um, Italy to see it uh, in a different way or firsthand and uh, participate with the, the family over there. Do you remember any of the uh, your, your first memories of stories about the old world? Um, because a lot of times you see these uh, Italian immigrant families, such as even as my own, where everyone kind of came here and you don't have that kind of direct connection to, to the old world. Yeah, uh, my great grandfather uh, Bartolomeo Pio, very old school. He um, he married a woman, my great grandmother. She died. Uh, he went back to the village where he met her and married her cousin. No. <laughs> Brought her back to America because he felt that you know uh, the uh, old world women contributed on a different level, and he would speak about that and things like that. So it was. Like in front of American women? Yeah, somewhat. You know, it could be a little odd or uncomfortable, but it was really, you know, his preference and how he wanted to go about what he wanted to do. And, you know, the interesting thing is he had five kids, and he had five kids work with him, work for him, and then subsequently run the company after he died. So um, he was able to to do some interesting things and then to bring bring some people along, bring some family members along with them. And the, the company still exists today. I, I don't know exactly when the company was established. I think it was in the 40s. Um, but there's there's a company named Bartolomeo Pia Wines and Spirits that still functions today out of Pen uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And their function is to import and distribute wines? Or Correct. Okay. Like, for instance, they're the largest distributor of Pio Cesare wines in the uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey market. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, being in that Pennsylvania, being Pennsylvania as a, a control state, I'm sure they have to deal with all sorts of Strange, you know. You always hear that Pennsylvania is the largest purchaser of so many different brands because itself is a control saying They have so much buying power. Correct. Yeah, and you know, there's certain days you can buy alcohol and certain days you can't, and only specific places to buy wine and spirits in that are 
uh, owned and governed and licensed by the state. So, yeah, I, I don't know how many control states there are, but Pennsylvania has a, a huge buying power and a, a pretty significant lobbying power. I don't believe my family has any seats or, or, or knowledge or, or uh, a way to influence anything that goes <laughs> on on that level. Um, but, you know, they've the business is considerably smaller than it was when it first opened because when they, they, they first brought it about, they um, made wine, and now they they don't make wine anymore. They just distribute people's wine. Mm-hmm. And at, growing up, was it, were you thinking that you would potentially work with the family uh, business, or you know, obviously you took a very different path? Well, yeah, on the Italian side of the family with lots of... Uh, aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews we were all thought of as workers (laughs) so things like loading trucks and you know duties like that manual labor duties like that were what you did after school uh yeah the my my cousin bart pio who runs the company now and myself were the the two boys. Uh, he's a little older than I, so it was somewhat of a speak that one of us would perhaps run the company one day. Um, and I just didn't really have it in me to be a salesperson. It wasn't it wasn't my real desire. A little bit like uh, John Cusack can say anything. You know, are you familiar with that line? Now go for it. Uh, <laughs> he's courting a woman, and her father says, "What do you do?" And he says, "You know." I, I don't do anything, but this is what I don't want to do. I don't buy things. I don't sell things. <laughs> it's it's somewhat of a cute line, but uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't see myself being in sales. Obviously, I'm in sales now in a certain way, but um, I decided that when I was going to school and studying business, that uh, I was more interested in the culinary arts than in the the business arts at that at that moment in the '80s. These and at the at that time, do you have any distinct culinary memories? Did you, was there an Italian grandma making making sauce on Sundays? Did you have these big? I'm I'm picturing a big Italian family that gets together on Sundays and has these these huge meals with with the the wines from the old world. Yeah, is definitely. that true? <laughs> yeah, you know it's a little cliche or stereotypical. You know, my grandmother told me how to cook, la la la. But in in this specific case. We did, when I lived in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. we did dine at 1 o'clock every Sunday, listening to, you know, the opera from the Met and drinking wine and eating whatever it was and lots and lots of great food. Um, you know, so when I had my first chef job and the chef said, let's make some raviolis, and he made raviolis, I was like, wow, I know somebody who makes better raviolis than you do. (laughs) (laughs) So a a little bit, you know, because they would buy grapes, right? So they would make wine in their basement to experiment, and they would make sausages and put cheeses down, and uh, there was always something to look at. Um, And then there was lots of my cousins who had no interest at all in anything old world. So there was only a few of us that seem to be corruptible to the old world ways and i guess i was one of them yeah and did you take any trips to the old world at that time did you go did you visit italy yeah i hadn't i guess i made my first trip to italy in the 80s maybe after 85 in between 1985 and 1990 which is you know pretty good 
pretty good section of years for drinking wine in Italy, right? Oh, uh, yeah. The, the lyric can go pretty far. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but like I was saying, my aunts and uncles and, and uh, the older generation all worked for my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So the deal was you would work. You would work uh, 11 months a year, all day and all night, and then one month a year he would give you a car and put you on a boat to Genoa with your family, and you would have four or five weeks off on him, you know, sponsored by the company, and you would be with your family driving around Italy, and, uh, you know, it would be a holiday, but you would be, I guess, doing some some types of duties or at least research and things like that so there was lots of stories about that but i i, I was never really part of that generation so um i guess the first time i went i went just for a holiday but i went to get reacquainted with pio balfa like we had known each other and met each other at lots of um family gatherings but they're usually all about distractions a family gathering would probably be a wedding or a funeral and you know not a lot of time to share with somebody in those moments so uh i guess i went over there just to visit and that kind of reconnected us and uh, i was saying look i i don't i don't want to sell wine but i want to make food and hopefully one day we'll do business together but probably in a different way than we we had we had thought about from the beginning yeah and so you've been going uh, somewhat consistently over the years. How have you noticed that Piedmont has has changed? Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, Piedmont's changed radically. I mean, a, a lot of things in the wine world have changed radically, you know, in the sense of like Tuscany and pouring Cabernet into Sauvignon Blanc. I'm sorry, into Sangiovese and things like that. Um, the Piedmont is, is very old school, but... You see things now like um, <clears throat> perhaps a, <clears throat> I'm sorry, horizontal, uh, horizontal. Uh, what do they call those tanks when you lay it down? The fermenters. Yes, yeah. thank you. You the know, roto, the, roto fermenters. Traditionally, they'd be a vertical tank, and 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 now mm. they have horizontal ones with with you know uh, adulation in them. So instead of laying wine down for thirty days, you can maybe do it in four days. Uh, so I've seen a lot of approaches, uh, new school approaches, both in growing grapes that are not indigenous to the region, different ways to uh, blend wine, and different techniques of uh, fermenting and aging wine. I would say they would be the three number one characteristics of the, the changes that have taken place in uh, in Piedmont over probably the last 20 years. I mean, it's it's an old school thought that most people use but then there's a, a good amount of um and they're not new producers but they're they're perhaps younger producers and they're a little bit interested in tinkering around with the formulas that they inherited you find that you're you're drawn to more of those more traditional wines with the indigenous grapes and the old school wooden fermenters or um, are you kind of equally as open to any good wine? Yeah, no, I'm. It's the latter. I'm. I'm. I'm very much open. Although I would say, for my palate, I prefer an old world style wine. I, I prefer something with a little more nuance in it than look at me, listen to me approach to uh, making and drinking wine. Uh, sometimes they're overly extracted or aged and 
they have a, a generous amount of flavor. Like a Sauvignon Blanc, a New World Sauvignon Blanc to me is not as desirable as as an Old World one, no matter where it comes from. Um, it, interesting more so to taste the grape than the other flavors that you might be able to to achieve with the grape. Yeah, yeah, it's it, the. I also like those kind of more nuanced wines as opposed to very obvious flavors. Yeah. Um, I'm with you on and that. And I don't think there was a lot of that, you know, before the 80s. But then you saw, you know, the, the first one was the, the big Burgundian-style California Chardonnays that took on a, a life of their own, mm-hmm. you know. And then I was speaking about Sauvignon Blancs, you know, the, the, the Southern Hemisphere Sauvignon Blancs of, you know, New Zealand and Australia are very wildly different than a than a white bordeaux or an american sauvignon blanc exactly yeah Yeah. and you know i mean sure they they're supposed to be a sancerre is not supposed to taste like an american sauvignon blanc but i don't know if a new zealand sauvignon blanc is supposed to taste like a slice of grapefruit either (laughs) all right we are going to take just a quick break Uh, we'll be back with more of in the drink with jimmy bradley today here on heritageradionetwork.org You are listening to Intrigue by Obesity on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from In the Drink. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. back with jimmy bradley here on in the drink um jimmy you opened up the red cat in the uh, in 1999 in uh in chelsea um tell us how uh what how did wine play into uh the opening of of that restaurant what were people drinking at that time what were your thoughts and approach to uh did you did you have say in the wine list um and and how how do you think that things have changed uh, yeah, I, I did the opening wine list with the fellow who was my opening manager, uh, Chris Correo, who is a, a wine salesman now um, in New York City. He was with me for a few years and then decided to uh, to get into the wine full-time instead of the restaurant business. And 
Um, you know, I guess Chelsea was was very different then, and Tenth Avenue didn't have much going on, and we felt as though we needed to tell a story and position ourselves because it wasn't about you know who you had worked for and 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 a lot of, a generous backstory. It was a little bit of making it up as you go along. It was uh, my first restaurant that I owned in in New York City in 1999. So um, I guess you know wine factors into every in my mind wine factors into anything that has to do with food. And so you know the the initial thought was let's have some very interesting things and let's give some great value and let's be able to talk about it and let's not do it in um, uh, like a hierarchy system. Let's do it as a team. So instead of having management very knowledgeable about the wine, which of course we would ask them to be and we would ask them to order it because it's a, it's a big responsibility ordering you know, millions of dollars worth of wine a year but to really bring it down to the servers and to, to have a program where they're very comfortable with it. And, um, you know, just trying to, to give a list that was interesting that we could afford. So I think we opened with maybe 70 bottles. I think we probably have a few hundred now and to just let it grow and uh, let it grow around the cuisine, around what we enjoy to drink and what our, what our guests perhaps ask us to provide for them would be you know some of the the ways that we would approach it i wanted to most people and most operators in new york city if you order a glass of wine they bring you a glass of wine and i didn't think that was as interesting as it could be i wanted to pour the wine table side and i wanted to give people tastes so we were doing that and that's a i hadn't seen a lot of that before 1999 and that's somewhat du rigor now i don't i don't have a I don't. I'm not saying. Yeah, that. no. At this point, if if I order a glass of wine and they just bring the glass of wine to the table, it's a, a surprise. It is. Yeah. To, like, and oh, that that okay. wasn't actually the case <laughs> then. Uh, no one was really talking about cocktails uh, in the style mm-hmm. of the restaurants that we have. We sell you know, the majority of the money that we sell from the um, from selling beverages comes from selling wine. I think it's probably about it's probably about a seventy thirty split food to to beverages and then out of that 30 percent 50 percent of that 30 percent is wine by the glass uh so you know we have probably 25 wines that we offer by the glass and then the only thing i try to do there is no vendor no house or no vendor gets any more than one wine by the glass to keep everybody honest and to keep Mm -hmm. it working properly it's very easy to have three people give you six things each and lean on them i i don't i don't really believe in that system i think if if i make my job just a little bit harder i'm probably able to tell a better story so i'm always looking at at that type approach so if there's 25 wines there's 25 vendors most people would be very scared of having 25 vendors i have 40 and 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 it doesn't intimidate me at all because it's the only real honest way that i know that it's all fair and everybody's being asked to do the same thing and provide the same way mm-hmm. and the person who does it the best with you gets it and the person who doesn't doesn't get it but you know everybody should know that that's tied to the laws of supply and demand yeah and it's something that i struggle with uh from time to time because there's you know there's like 250 vendors here in in new york uh, of wine and uh uh 
and I, a lot of times I want to, you know, root for the small guy too, and just uh, give him, give him a shot. Um, but you're right. Every time you take on a vendor, it does it does require more work for you. You're going to meet with them more. They're going to email you more. Um, so we also work with the 40, 40 to 50 different vendors, which I think is a lot for the industry. But uh, I think it's a great way to to, to keep your list uh, alive um, and to to make sure that you're constantly working to, to to think about what's the next new good thing here. Let's let's keep it fresh. And it's a consistent message. It's consistent with the providers, and it's consistent mm-hmm. with the guests. We are not going to buy the things that just sell. And we're going to look to do something a little bit more interestingly, but we're going to be able to give you a value and explain it to you in the process. Like, for instance, I'm pretty sure the three number one selling dishes in America are fried calamari, tuna tartare, and Caesar salad. Doesn't matter where you are, but I'm pretty sure that's those are the big ones. So, like, what are the ones in wine? And if I figured that out, I would say, I don't want to serve that. And it's not that I think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a more interesting way to perhaps do it. So, again, if I take the things that I know are the easiest things to sell and I decide not to sell them or to sell them in a different way, Mm -hmm. I've created a situation where it's perhaps more difficult for me. But I also feel like it's a more thoughtful approach and it's a better story. So, yeah, there's nothing wrong with tuna tartare. I mean, fried calamari can be the best thing there is, but you're not going to go to the Red Cat and get fried calamari and a glass of Chardonnay. It's just not going to happen. And it's not that there's anything wrong with them. It's just that we're a little bit more interested in telling a broader story than what we know is going to sell. I don't think that's the most interesting story that we could provide. I mean, that's a story for... A different kind of operator. Well, tell us the story about what kind of wines uh, you put on the list there. What are the types of producers that you're drawn to, and, and how do you go about food and wine pairing? Well, there's really nothing off the limits, off limits, because there's nothing. Wine and food are, are completely symbiotic in our approach. And so then I would say, what does the menu do? The only real direction for the menu is. It, it can't be fusion, and it shouldn't touch anything Asian, but it can be rooted in this pretty broad, multicultural, somewhat Mediterranean approach of the cuisines of around the, the Mediterranean. There's probably seven, eight, ten countries around it, and influ- broader influence than that. So we would look for wines that aren't, you know, your go-to generic over-the-counter wine. We would look to wines to... to fit perfectly with the the flavors of the food we would look to see if we could find value we would look in odd shaped and sized bottles to see what we could do there and and to see and i enjoy pouring wine by the glass out of magnums and double magnums and 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 feel there's some interesting stories and value in there um so a lot of what we do isn't just what we we don't say this is what we want to do. We basically say, this is what we don't want to do. Let's make up what we want to do together. So we'll sit around with the chef and the wine person and myself, and we'll say, well, if we know what we don't want to do, what do we really want to do, and what does it look like? And then everybody puts their two cents in, and you start to see a document. Yeah, yes. I mean, you guys have a fantastic wine list, and um, that and I've always, I think, hired great people. I've been coming in for, for quite some time before 
we opened up Delanium in 07. Before I worked at Babel, before all that, I was I was actually selling wine, doing the thing that you said you didn't want to do. Um, and the Harrison was one of the... Uh, actually, the Harrison and both Red Cat were, were two of the few places that actually bought wine from me. <laughs> nice. Um, Which company were you with? I was with Vinifera. Oh, sure. Great company. And uh, and uh, always had... You know, you, you always hired professionals who... Uh, there's a lot of people who don't treat their wine reps very nicely, and uh, I, I was always received very, very nicely. So, luckily, I, I, you know, since those were two of my only accounts that actually bought wine, I, I had a lot of meals at the time, um, and so was always thank you impressed. for your patronage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Joe, I guess the way I look at it is, you can't really kick somebody closer to you, you know. So this whole thing about having demands and being a difficult person sure fine you know and and that might even be the new york way but i'm pretty sure there's more ways than just one to do something and i'm pretty sure that you know i want my approach to be something that's more like how i would prefer to act or be treated than this game or charade that i play with a certain group of people that i purchase with and then I wouldn't have a different relationship with someone who sold me meat than I would with somebody who sold me wine because what I'm what I'm more or less interested in is the relationship. If if I if I have a certain thing with you and we speak to each other and you have an idea of what I want and what I want to do and what my thresholds are, we can probably do some pretty interesting things. If you're just bringing me stuff that you want to get rid of, you know, I hate you and I'll make it known. <laughs> so, you know, if we can do this thing together, it's going to be great. Now, you know, the, the traditional business approach would be how do I make money, you know, because that's what we're trying to do. But that's that's that would be one of the the gears in our wheel you know so sure fine but what's the value and what's the story and how does this fit with the food and how does this work into our our style of service and once we answer all those then we can provide a list and specific wines that um we would like to offer our guests yeah so now has it all come full circle your what's your relationship like with uh with pierre cesare are, are you selling the wines at the restaurants and you have good business and and family relationship with with the family yeah i go to italy three or four times a year pio comes to america three or four times a year so we see each other we take a family holiday we used to make wine together uh proprietary wine for the red cat and the harrison um we stopped doing that but we always sell his wine we always offer one of his wines by the glass and then one he he probably makes about 18 or 19 different varietals that he brings to america so we try to have two maybe three on each list um like i said they used to be proprietary uh, we we got away from that because I didn't want a wine that said Red Cat Pio Cesare on the label being sold by someone other than myself. And so when they changed some of the regulations in New York City, or New York State, I should say, mm-hmm. I just decided to move away from that approach, um, knowing that Pio makes amazing wine, and it really didn't matter that we had our label on it. You know, somewhat similar to, like, perhaps a... The Union Square, they had a deal with uh, Roca Manzona, you know, the Vino Big, and they were pouring 
the big big i guess for years and years but danny never asked him to call it the usc big big mm -hmm. you know so when i was saying to pia wouldn't it be nice if we had your name and my name on the label like yeah sure great let's do it and after three years of doing it it's really it's really more about your wine pio than what it is what we make together what was your influence in the in the wine and well we would do blends mm -hmm. so um I would make the blend with him. It'd be he and I and his winemaker in a room pouring wines together until we got what we wanted. And so we would make a red and we would make a white and sometimes we would make a rosé. And the red was usually Barbera based with some other things added into it that could be, you know, like a, a Syrah, but it could also be like um, a Dolcetto. Uh, and then the... Um, the white was a um, agave-based varietal that, you know, and every year, because every year the grapes are different, so we would taste the varietals, and then we would think about how to blend it. This sounds like a blast. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of sure. fun. With, yeah. With it was a boondoggle. Maker. It was, uh, you know, I have to go to work in Italy. That's yeah. what I would say to my staff, and then, you know, we would sit around for three days and drink <laughs> wine. All right. Well, Jimmy, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, guys out there, um, if you have not been yet, I don't know what you're, what you're waiting for, but um, definitely uh, please go visit uh, the Red Cat and the Harrison, two not only classic restaurants, great restaurants here in New York City, um, but great places to drink wine as well. Um, so, Jimmy Bradley, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you, Joe. And thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.